Well, it's a beautiful day outside, but we as a church, we don't want to pretend that life is beautiful and rosy and peachy all the time. I don't believe we do, but sometimes the people can get that impression from churches. We don't want to be that way. We don't want to pretend that, that life is rosy all the time. We don't want to dole out false security or comfort or overuse cliches or pat answers. We want to be honest. And the honest truth in the matter is that sometimes life is incredibly hard. We don't want to claim that everything is okay when everything is not okay. We want to ask the hard questions. Where is God when life hurts? Where is God in the pain and the trauma and depression, difficulties? Probably the hardest seasons that we all go through have to do with our final enemy, death. When we approach death ourselves, or when those we love are nearing death, or when we find ourselves in the aftermath of these events, we wonder, where is God in the emergency rooms, in the cancer wards? Where is God in the morgues, funeral homes, graveyards? Where is God in miscarriages and suicides and car wrecks and other unexpected deaths? Where is God when babies or children or or siblings or parents, grandparents or other relatives or friends pass away? What comfort is there for people suffering through tragedy? What hope is there for life after death? I believe that the Bible actually gives us answers for these terribly hard questions. And they aren't just cliched or easy answers. They're absolutely true. And they're real. Where is God in the midst of our pain? And the answer is, He is right there with us. He's suffering along with us, empathizing and sympathizing, caring for us. Some people in our world believe that God and suffering can't coexist. But a vast number of Christians would testify, including many of you I know, that in the middle, in the worst suffering we go through, is often where we feel the absolute closest to God. That that's when he draws nearest to us. And he's the most real. He makes himself most known to us in the middle of our pain and our grief. And in those times, we see his compassion and we see his power best displayed. We're going to see this today as we open God's word together. And we're going to turn once again to the Gospel of Luke to read about the life of Jesus So please go ahead and turn there with me to Luke chapter 7, verse 11. This will be on page 863 if you have a pew Bible in front of you. Luke chapter 7, 11. Where is God in funerals? Well, today, we're going to see Jesus step right into one. And he's going to change some people's lives forever. So he's going to answer this question. And I believe... 
that He can do the same that He did in that day for us today if we'll let Him. If you would, please pray with me towards that end. Heavenly Father, as we look into Your Word, I pray that You would guide our hearts to see Your compassion, that we would see Your power, that we would learn to trust You, even when life hurts, when death comes and and tries to steal away our joy, where can we go? We pray that you would answer that for us, you would comfort us, encourage us, and help us to see the life that you offer. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week in Luke, we read the story of Jesus healing the servant of a Roman centurion in the town of Capernaum. And Capernaum was basically Jesus' home base in Galilee, northern Palestine. Today we're going to see Jesus actually venture out of Capernaum. He's going to go to a little town called Nain. And in Luke 7, verse 11, it says this, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Nain was still in Galilee, but about 25 miles south of Capernaum. We know next to nothing about this town. In fact, it's the only time in the entire Bible that this town is mentioned. But what happened on this day would be very significant. The other thing we see in this verse 11 is that Jesus' popularity was rapidly increasing. Just every single day, Jesus kept attracting more and more people to him. And it says, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. These people that were, that were coming with him, they were so captivated by him that they followed him everywhere. People were quitting their jobs, leaving their homes, and just taking off to go with him. <laughs> Can you imagine being that enamored with someone that you'd leave everything you have just to be with him, be associated with him? Honey, pack the bags, grab the kids. Jesus is on the move today. That means so are we. <laughs> it's hard to imagine what this crowd of what I call Jesus groupies <laughs> would have been like. They were following him. They must have been captivated, enamored, thrilled, awestruck, enthralled, giddy. They knew that something ultra special was happening. And they wanted to be part of it. I imagine that this crowd must have been a pretty happy bunch, a party-like atmosphere. Sick people that had been healed, oppressed people that had been freed, outcasts that had been welcomed in, disciples that had been called. They were with Jesus, the kingdom was coming, and life was good. But this party train was about to meet a very different train of people. And as they were about to joyfully enter Nain, what they saw must have felt like a brick hit them in the gut. It says in verse 11, a great crowd went with him. Verse 12, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Have you ever gone to greet someone that you know very happily? Hey, how's it going? And then they answer something like, oh, not so good. 
my dog died yesterday. <laughs> or maybe much worse, maybe someone they loved and cared about died, and, and they just break the news to you. How does that feel? <laughs> just get a sinking feeling. I think we've all felt that before, that the joy in the air just gets sucked out from us. So sorry to hear that. And then you later you're kicking yourself, thinking, how insensitive could I have been? You can just see the whole crowd that was with Jesus feeling that way. They come up all happy, and then we'll shh, shushing each other. Someone died. Have you ever been a part of a funeral procession before? I think most of us have. You know when everyone leaves the funeral home or the church together and they head off, they get into, cram into vehicles and head off together in a big convoy to the graveyard or the cemetery. Everyone drives slowly and respectfully and tries to stay together. Other vehicles often show respect too, either slowing down or stopping to let the procession stay together. Everyone knows if you see a hearse and a bunch of cars following closely behind, Keep your distance and you show respect. In Jesus' day, they had funeral processions as well, but they were obviously a bit different. No cars were involved, of course, but lots of people were. After someone died, all the mourning family and friends would come together and then they would escort the body out to the burial site, usually to a tomb outside the city. Bearers, or really what their pallbearers, would carry the body either in a coffin or on a stretcher out to the outskirts of town. And most people would either follow closely behind, or actually most people would follow closely behind, except for the immediate family. And immediate family were different. They would walk in front. They would lead the procession in front of the coffin. In most funeral processions, there were also usually some hired people. They would have musicians that they hired to play some dirges on flutes. They also had, no joke, professional mourners. Okay, so these people were hired to cry and wail loudly after the death. Even if they didn't know the person. They were hired to mourn. So this was the scene that as Jesus and his crowd approached Nain, that they saw. This loud and mournful funeral procession. A really sad scene. This account from Jesus' ministry does not start out happily. It begins with great sorrow. If you saw what it said in 12, this is probably one of the saddest funerals you could imagine. It said, as soon as he draw near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So, we learn later that this man who died was also a young man. He was not older, so we don't know how young he was. We don't know why he died or whether or not it was expected. But we always think that the younger the death, the more tragic it is, right? That's the way we think. I'm sure it seemed this way for the people who cared about this man. He was, he was too young to die. He was just too young to pass away. Parents aren't supposed to have to bury their children. But this man's mother had to. Not only was she burying her son, it says that he was her only son. 
She never had any other children and thus had no one else to comfort her now. Not only that, this wasn't the first major death this woman had to face. It says that she was a widow, which means that at some point before, she had already buried her husband. Her son had likely grown up, if you think about it, learning to be the man of the house, helping to take care of his mother. If he was old enough to work, he probably helped support his mother financially. But now, for whatever reason, he had died as well. Probably leaving her without support. She had lost her husband. She lost her son. She lost everyone she cared about. She was alone, likely forced to walk alone at the front of the procession. On top of all this, unlike most funerals today, most funerals in Jesus' day took place the very day that someone died. They had to get the body buried before it started to decay. But that meant that there had been no time for reflection or closure or comforting of any kind. This was just numb heavy, raw grief at its worst. I'd imagine that she may have even gone into shock over all this. But in the midst of her deepest despair, God sovereignly put Jesus into her path. And the way that Jesus responds in these verses is going to show us the main point of this entire story, the reason that Luke wrote this. It's a major principle of how God works. It was true for this grieving widow, and it's absolutely still true for us today in whatever we go through. And that's this, that God shows compassionate power to his people. Simple point, but God shows compassionate power to his people. Often at the same time, compassion and power. I think compassion and power is really a great way to sum up how Jesus is going to respond here. He first had compassion, and then he showed his power because of his compassion. We see the compassion most clearly in verse 13. It says this, And when the Lord saw her, when he saw the widow, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. So Jesus saw this funeral procession, saw the woman leading the way, and it evoked a deep feeling of compassion for this dear woman. What is compassion? Well, Jesus, and it's very obvious, he clearly felt sympathy for her, feeling her pain, feeling sorry for her. Verse 13 in the NIV says that his heart went out to her. Sympathy is an important part of compassion. But compassion is more than just sympathy. The dictionary defines compassion as the sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. That's a great definition of it. It's the sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate. So compassion is sympathy plus a desire to help. And that's what Jesus felt here. Most of us, when we see people in grief, we feel a lot of sympathy for people. People in need of any kind. We emotionally feel bad for them. It takes a lot more to feel true compassion for them. The desire to change things. To help meet them in their need. Our God, though, is a God of amazing compassion. God sees our situations, our needs, 
our states, our conditions, and he sympathizes for us. He feels our pain and wishes that we didn't need to go through the pain. But then he desires to change our situation for the better. Psalm 103, 13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. This is not because we deserve better, it's because he loves us. If you don't know this yet, let me tell you today, God has deep compassion for you. This is such a comforting thought, that the God of the universe cares about me. He cares about you. We may have all kinds of trouble and pain on earth, but he cares. And he wants to alleviate our suffering. You may think, well, I don't need any sympathy or compassion. I'm doing pretty well. But here's the issue with feeling that way. We're not all well. None of us are. We have all got a common ailment. A common sorrow that we all face. It's the same ailment that struck this young man and the same sorrow that hit his mother. And that is that death comes to us all. None of us can escape it. It comes to us all because all of us have the disease of sin. Romans 5.12 says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. Because of sin, there will be a hearse one day with your body in it. Let that sink in. Because of sin. Death is the human condition. We're all in it, and we all need a way out. Thankfully, God didn't just show us sympathy. He didn't just feel bad for us. He showed us compassion. In our story, Jesus graciously had compassion for this mourning widow. And we see throughout Scripture, and especially through Jesus' life, that God cares especially deeply about people in deep need. And two of his favorites to care about were widows and orphans. <laughs> Psalm 68.5 says that God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of of widows. And here Jesus saw a fatherless son and a lonely widow and decided to act. Jesus had has incredible amounts of compassion for those in need. And I would add today, so should we. So should we. And if we claim to be followers of Christ, we must follow his example of compassion in seeking to care for the poor, for the hungry, for the needy and thirsty, the oppressed, the abused, the lonely, and as we see here, for those who are grieving. As Christians, we can't avoid grief ourselves, and neither should we avoid other people's grief. We can't just avoid it. Grief may make us feel uncomfortable or awkward, but we can't run away from it. Times of grief are really times of great opportunity to love 
as Christ loved us. It's a great opportunity. 2 Corinthians 1 tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Have we experienced God showing compassion to us in our need? Of course we have. So the follow-up question is, are we showing compassion to those in need? Are we? What would it mean for you to show compassion to the needy around you? I encourage you to really take the time to seriously think this through. Think deeply about it. If you're in a small group, you're going to work through this together this week. What would this mean for us to show compassion to those around us? But if we have received compassion, we must turn and show it to others. We have to share it. Philip Ryken says, The comfort we receive is the comfort that we are called to give. And when we give it, We are following the example of Jesus. To be like Christ is to be drawn to people who suffer, to have an instinctive compassion for their sorrows. In this passage, we ask, well, how did Jesus show compassion to the widow? In a few ways. First, he gently told her, do not weep. Do not weep. Now, imagine for a minute. Put yourself in the widow's shoes here. Numb, with deep grief, crying nonstop. How would you feel if a total stranger came up to you and told you to stop crying? I think I'd either be in too much shock to even care what others said, or I'd start getting angry. What? Are you kidding me? Who are you? Why in the world would I stop crying? How dare you tell me not to weep? I just lost my son. You might hear Jesus saying this, saying, do not weep, and wonder, is it wrong for us to show grief? Is that wrong? The answer is no, not at all. We even know that Jesus in his time on earth wept. He wept, and one of the times that he wept was over a friend of his who had died. There are times in our lives that tears will flow freely, and that's okay. There may be some things we shouldn't cry over, but there are many things that we can or even should cry about. That we can weep. Sin, sickness, death, destruction. These break God's heart. Why shouldn't they break ours? Grief is not wrong, foolish, or weak. It can be a good thing. God gave us our emotions, and we cry really because we care. That's a good thing. Here, Jesus wasn't telling the woman to stop crying because it was foolish or weak to cry. He was telling her not to cry because... He was about to change everything. So we see Jesus' compassion here. We haven't seen his power yet. Buckle your seatbelts. <laughs> this story is about to go get crazy. If you haven't 
heard this story before and you haven't looked ahead, you probably can predict where this is going. But don't think about your expectations. I want you to, as we read these verses, imagine being some of these people here. Imagine how surprising this would have been to them. Okay? Verse 14. After he says, do not weep, then Jesus came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. This is insane! (laughs) Jesus raised the guy from the dead on the spot! This would have been beyond surprising. This would have been shocking, astonishing, and stunning to people. This And this vividly displays the power that Jesus had. He was not just some ordinary guy. Not a total stranger. He, he had crazy amounts of power. And he showed his power here because he was compassionate. Here's the main truth behind these verses. That God's compassionate power is powerful enough to raise the dead. God in Jesus is powerful enough to raise the dead. Last week, we saw that sometimes God waits to bless us until we ask in faith. But he doesn't need to wait. He doesn't need to be asked. Nobody asked Jesus to raise this guy from the dead here. He just went and did it. We don't, and what we see, we don't move God. God moves because of his compassion and love. We can't move him, but he does anyway. When we see someone in deep sorrow or despair, we can often only offer our sympathy. We can feel sorry for them. We can try to comfort them. We can, most importantly, we can pray for them. But Jesus had way more to offer than that. Way more to offer than just sympathy or comfort or prayer. He had power. And after he probably shocked this widow by telling her not to weep, he approached the dead man, and verse 14 again said, he came up, touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. A bier was either a coffin or it was probably an open type of stretcher that they were carrying this man on. People in Jesus' day tried to keep their distance from dead people for the sake of ceremonial cleanness. But Jesus came right up and touched the bier. And people around must have thought he was crazy. Not, uh, not to mention how rude and insensitive of him to interrupt a funeral procession of all things. What was he thinking? It was so stunning that enough that the pallbearers came to a complete halt. They stood completely still. <laughs> What's going on? Why are we stopping? Who is this guy? I imagine that the loud and wailing crowd behind them must have fallen silent. What's happening? Can you, can you feel the drama, the, the tension in this moment? Most people were probably either shocked or confused. Many were probably angry. But everyone was waiting. Everyone was waiting to see what this bold stranger was up to. What people probably didn't grasp was that something much greater and something much bigger was actually taking place. Philip Ryken again says this. He says that a dramatic 
confrontation was taking place at the front of that funeral procession. A collision between life and death. An unstoppable force was meeting a seemingly immovable object. The grieving had come out to bury their dead, but when the funeral met Jesus, death had to stop in its tracks. Everyone else had to follow the procession, but Jesus had the authority to bring it to a halt. When he put out his hand, it was as if to say, as if to say Death, you will come thus far, but no farther. You might wonder, well, was this man for sure dead? Well, the verses say he was. Verse 15 said, and the dead man sat up. The dead man, Luke doesn't say the sleeping man or the man who everyone thought was dead sat up. Skeptics may doubt this. They, they doubt that this was an actual resurrection or a resuscitation. But there is no reason to doubt God's perfect word to us. Besides, Luke wasn't only a careful and, and respected historian, he was also a doctor. Okay? And in, in Luke's professional medical opinion, and what he heard about the story, this man was dead. But then once Jesus spoke, he instantly came back to life. You see that? Jesus said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Reginald Quirk, what a great name, right? Reginald Quirk. But he has a great quote on this. He says, What nonsense and absurdity there is in that phrase. The dead man sat up. If he were dead, he could not sit up. If he could sit up, he was not dead. <laughs> what nonsense! Unless, unless we are prepared to abandon the idea that is second nature to us, to say that with Christ, death is neither an unstoppable force nor an immovable object. It is simply the last enemy to be overcome. Death is swallowed up in victory. This is, an, in fact, the death of death. Think of how crazy this would have been to see. A funeral procession being interrupted by some random guy who then proceeded to talk to the dead guy, and then the dead guy sits up. What did he say? Well, where am I? What's going on? Why am I in a coffin? <laughs> Mom, why are you crying? This was an absolute miracle. Consider what Jesus had to do to do this. He would have had to summon the man's soul from the place of the dead. He had to reunite the man's body and soul, reintegrating the person. He had then had to heal him from whatever caused him to die in the first place. In an instant. This required power over the visible and the invisible, over the natural and the supernatural, over bodies and souls, and over life and over death. This had to have been Jesus' most incredible miracle to date. He had healed lots of people up till now, even those on their deathbeds. But until now, he hadn't brought anyone from their post-deathbed. Notice that the man was raised to life by the power of Jesus' word alone. 
Jesus didn't have to pray for the guy. He didn't have to touch him. He just had to speak. It shows Jesus total authority. His authority is God. Powerful as this is, as this story is, this story is really just a shadow of what was to come in Jesus' life. It showed, this story showed Jesus' incredible compassion and his immense power. But nowhere would these things be seen more clearly than in Jesus' own death and resurrection. Jesus' compassion can be seen most powerfully as he offered himself up to death, complete sacrifice, all to take all care of our problem of sin. That's compassion. He saw our helpless state, he had compassion on us, and then he died for us. And his power, the powerful enough to raise the dead, was seen most vividly three days after that when Jesus came back to life himself conquering over his own grave and destroying the power of death once and for all. We ask, where is God in death? Where is he in death? Look at the cross. Look at the empty grave. That's where he is. He died. He rose again. And he offers victory over the grave to all who will believe in him. He is the God who works miracles. He is the God of compassion. He's the God who gives life. And the same Jesus that spoke these words to the dead man is still speaking today. And he's still he's saying, men, women, young men, young women, I say to you, arise! Ephesians 5.14 says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Jesus wants to bring each of us back to life from the grave of our sins today. You heard his voice? Have you responded to his voice? Have you awoken from your own grave? The death and resurrection of Christ is what gives us hope for life after death. It's what gives us hope for escaping this human condition that we're all in. And he is offering new life, real life, eternal life to you this morning. If you have questions about this or would like to talk more Pray with someone. Please come see me after we're done. I'd love, I'd be delighted to help you with this. There's nothing more glorious going from death to life. What Jesus offers us. If you didn't know it already, if you haven't believed, you are dead right now. But God can bring you to life today. He still works miracles today. And every resurrected soul is a miracle. After Jesus raised this man from the dead here, 
verse 15 says that he gave him to his mother. Reminding us that this new life is a gift, and it was compassion for the widow that inspired his action in the first place. What Jesus does here for this widow is what he will do for all those who love him and follow him. He gives us the gift of life, and one day he will reunite us with those who go on before us. It's a great reuniter of loved ones. Well, the accounts of Jesus' miracles in the Gospels almost always say what happened afterwards. They follow it up, and they describe the response of those around Jesus. And what this does, it often hints at what our response needs to be. Here's our response in this passage. That God shows compassionate powers to his people, and God's compassionate power should lead to awestruck praise. God's compassion and power should lead us to fear God and to worship God. His compassionate power, especially through shown in Jesus, should lead to awestruck praise. You can see this in the way the crowds responded to Jesus' miracle here. Verse 16 says, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. In verse 16, fear seized them all. Apparently referring to both Jesus' entourage and the people of Nain. All the people were there. Now, in the, in the face of great power, fear is the natural response. It's what happens naturally. For example, if you walked into an elevator and standing right next to you was the pro wrestler Hulk Hogan. You know, the big muscular guy, handlebar mustache, big scary. Would you not feel just a little bit nervous standing right next to him? I would. I know that this guy could crush me like a potato chip if he wanted to. Or maybe imagine bumping into someone with a different type of power. Maybe Barack Obama, or maybe the CEO of the company that you work for. Or maybe, on the more scary side, maybe a guy with a gun. All these people have different types of power. And being in the presence of us, if someone powerful evokes fear. From nervousness to terror. This is similar to how we should feel when we realize God's power. When we realize the crazy power that he has, it should put the fear of God in us literally. We should be awestruck by how powerful he is. The fear of God is an appropriate reverence and awe of who God is. He is sovereign, great, holy, and just. And that should strike fear in sinners like us. This is how people around Jesus must have felt. After he went here, young man, I say to you, arise. The guy sits up, whoa! Who is this guy? That's power. A man can raise the dead. He could crush us in an instant if he wanted to. The fear of Jesus here didn't lead people to cower 
or run and hide. It made them marvel. If, if fear is the natural response to God's power, praise is the second and the necessary response. Verse 16, just again, fear sees them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Glorifying God simply means to give him glory or credit or, or to praise him. And Luke says that what these people were saying amongst themselves was bringing glory to God. Let me tell you, God does astounding things around us every day because of his compassion. He does all kinds of things for us because of his compassion. Every single blessing he gives us on earth is because he loves us. He heals people from diseases and injuries. He answers huge prayer requests that we have. He brings people out from very distressing circumstances all the time. And we've seen it. He draws people miraculously to Him, to faith, from death to life, every day. Now, when we see or we hear about things like these, from the smallest blessings to the greatest miracles, what is our response? How do we respond? Maybe do we think, when he blesses us, look what I've accomplished. So great. Maybe we think, when we come out of a distressing circumstance or a sickness or something, oh, so lucky. Or maybe I finally pulled through, finally came out of it. Or do we turn to God in with gratitude and awe and praise? I'll tell you what we should do. We should fall to our knees in awestruck wonder that God would care about us. And we should worship the Lord of life who triumphed over his grave and triumphs over our graves. And then we should rise and tell everyone we know of how great our God is. The people who witnessed this miracle of Jesus couldn't stop talking about him. And it says that they, they said, A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. You know what? If we've stopped talking about what God has done in our lives, we've lost the awe. The awe naturally leads to praise, which includes just talking him up, <laughs> saying how great he is, how good he's been to you. Notice what the people in the story, we've read it a couple times, what they were saying about Jesus. First thing, they said, a great prophet has arisen among us. Their first thought was that Jesus was this new and powerful prophet. Why did they think that? Well, the last time that the people of Israel knew that someone had been raised from the dead 
was when the prophet Elisha raised a young man from the dead in 2 Kings 4. It was actually the son of a widow, in fact. But Elisha had come, raised this young man from the dead. There are three people that we know of that Jesus, in his time on earth, raised from the dead. Jairus' daughter and Lazarus are the other two. This young man was first. Okay? So this is the first person that Jesus raised from the dead. It had been over a thousand years, a millennium, since anyone had seen anything like this before. And they immediately thought, only, only prophets of God can raise the dead like Elisha did. So Jesus must be a prophet, and a great prophet at that. But Jesus was, in fact, even greater than Elisha. Elisha, if you read the story in 2 Kings 4, Elisha had to come and beg and plead with God to raise the dead. And God had to do it. Jesus here just had to speak. And it happened. I think the people here had to have an inkling of this fact, that Jesus was even greater. And that's because of the other thing they were saying. It says in verse 16, they also said, God has visited his people. God has visited his people. What a remarkable thing to say. That God had visited this little town of Nain through Jesus. The New Living Translation says that we have seen the hand of God at work today. The people recognized that Jesus had to be more than just a man. Ordinary man can't raise the other men from the dead like Jesus did. Only God could. So this visitor, this random stranger that had come walking into the town, walking down their streets, was not only a man. He was God. Wow. Who was the last visitor that you had at your house? Maybe a friend, maybe a family member. Those are visitors. They come visit for a while and they leave. We don't think of God very often as a visitor. But in Jesus, we know that God visited earth. Earth was not his home. It was our home. And yet, he made himself at home among us. And stayed a while. We should never lose our wonder over this incredible truth. And we should praise God for it. Be awestruck by it. Here's the thing, though. Really, God has more than just visited us. He's more than just visited. If we've believed... Through the Holy Spirit, God has moved into our hearts permanently. He lives with us. He's no longer a visitor. And the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit as a seal or a guarantee for the future. Now, because of Jesus' compassion and because of the Holy Spirit's power, there is an eternal, strong, immovable hope for all of us. There is hope of our own resurrection. There is eternal hope. There is hope in the midst of grief. Hope in the midst of sorrow and pain or despair. 
There's hope in the midst of funerals and funeral processions and burials because God is in the midst of it all, meeting us there, loving us there, having compassion on us, and then promising us His power. Now, as a church, we don't want to pretend. We don't want to pretend that everything in this life is rosy all the time, because often it's not. Pain is real. Heartache is real. Death is real. But so is hope. Hope is real. We know that there is more than death in this life. There is a Savior who has conquered death. There is a Savior who will bring life again one day. That day is coming when Jesus will say to the dead, Arise! And He will say to the living, Weep no more! We don't want to claim that everything is okay when everything's not okay. But we do believe and we proclaim That one day, everything will be okay. Everything will be okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we read stories like these of your time here on earth, all we can do is just be amazed by you be awestruck by you, that you would care about us, that you would show compassion to us, and that you would save us by your power. We praise you, we thank you, and we rest on that truth, that even in the trials of life, in the pain and the death, that one day everything will be okay, and that we'll be able to say then, that we can say now and we can say then, that it is well with our souls because of you. We thank you in Jesus' name.